1: Welcome to Blue Mountain Village Voices.
0: I'm joined today with my podcast partner, Sydney Davidian.
1: Hello, everybody.
0: Thanks for joining us, Sydney. Sydney helps me prepare for all of our interviews. She manages all the production side, edits all of our great conversations, and uh, she'll be joining me from time to time to engage in the discussion and connect. So I wanted to introduce you to her today.
1: Yeah, I'm very excited to be here, and it's nice to be on the the front end of it all.
0: Absolutely. You know, Sydney, we have a really cool guest today. His name is John Ardell. He has been a farmer in the region for many decades and his family farm goes back to the, like the early 1920s.
1: Yeah, which is insane, but the history behind it all is quite interesting as well.
0: It really is. And John John is going to talk to us today about farming in the South Georgian Bay region. He's going to talk about the apple growing sector and why apples are such an interesting and important crop to the region and we also cover a number of other things that i think a lot of people aren't that aware of as when they think about agriculture things like technology things like labor force planning things like regulations we have some pretty in-depth discussion about food security and safety and and many other interesting topics so uh, i'm really looking forward to this one A little bit of a background on John, just to to kick it off. John's family farm is one of the major producers of apples in the South Georgian Bay region. John works with his family, including his sons, Greg and Liam. Do you know Greg and Liam?
1: Not personally, but you know, in our small town, you meet a lot of people through other people. So I've heard their names and I know their names, but I haven't had the pleasure quite yet.
0: They collectively farm about 300 acres and produce about 200,000 bushels of apples a year. It's a lot of apples. Yes, it is. <laughs> While the Ardell Acres' uh, major clients include major grocery chains, they have also shipped apples like globally as far away as Madagascar, which I think is pretty cool. In addition to growing and selling apples, the team... And its partners also have expanded into consumer cider and wine brands and production. So, you know, it's another thing that we learn about in this podcast is uh, agricultural growers really are expanding their business into multiple different verticals. So it's pretty interesting. Over the last 10 years, Apple production in Ontario has averaged around 300 million pounds with an average annual farm gate value of $85 million. So it's pretty big business.
1: Yeah, you wouldn't really think that about apples if you don't have any background or history from it, but especially in this area, I mean,
0: it's huge. It's the backbone. Aside from tourism, it's one of the biggest contributions to our economic uh, productivity in the region, so it's pretty big. Well, with that, thanks for joining me today, and uh, let's get started with John Ardell. Well, hello, John. Thank you for joining us. Hey there, Andrew. How are you doing? Good. How are you doing? Just great, thanks. Well, thank you for joining us today. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got started as an apple grower and in your family business.
2: Well, it kind of happens by default. Uh, You're the only son in the uh, family and not that daughters don't get into it as well. But 45 years ago, not so much. Growing up as a child, I always just loved the apple growing business from where i could see it at that point in my life and i would say from when i was about 10 years old that's all i wanted to do was be an apple grower. here i am 45 years later
0: (laughs) when you were a kid was it was there a time when you could go and like climb the trees and play in an orchard is that a little different today compared to what it was like when you were a kid
2: oh absolutely i remember those days fondly our sons uh, greg and Liam had the same uh, excitement and experiences and, and so on and, and it's still the same now although the trees are trees are quite a bit smaller
0: that's true yeah and, and you're probably a little more focused on them in a different way maybe today than you would have been now that we focus on measures and yield and all that sort of stuff right it's probably changed
2: oh it changed tremendously yeah yeah
0: yeah we'll, we'll get into that a little later on I think you highlighted probably what is a, a very well-known sort of pathway into agriculture, and that is a, a lot of family businesses. A lot of people grow up in the business and and either take on the family farm or expand and and continue it through the next generation. Are there other pathways to agriculture that you see? Are are, are people discovering it and studying it who, who maybe didn't grow up in the field? Is that a trend?
2: Oh, yes, that happens uh, very much so. And even when I went to University of Guelph taking my horticulture, uh, there were people then that were, we called them concrete cowboys, right out of the city, (laughs) but keen on agriculture. There is pathways in that regard. It's uh, quite feasible for someone to go to a place like University of Guelph, uh, maybe perhaps the Ridgetown campus, get a background, then go from there and uh, choose a career uh, working for a farm. And I've seen it a number of times where these students finishing off will get a job with a farmer. The farmer doesn't have someone in the family that wants to take over. They grow a relationship. And uh, I've seen where that person has eventually taken over the farm. And oh. uh, to make it financially feasible, you know, the the farmer has uh, made concessions for payment and it's a long-term buyout but it's a it's a wonderful way to do it so if you don't have family and you're automatically kind of into it i've seen that a, a number of times i thought that was pretty cool
0: that is very cool. I spend a lot of time working with small businesses, and I know that succession planning is a, is a real struggle. And I know a lot of small businesses have a hard time kind of selling their business when they're ready to retire. I think what's really cool about that is the culture of mentorship in agriculture, maybe traditionally in, in family, still endures, but in a different way. And what a great way for someone to mentor a student, someone from the next generation, and then, and then work together on that transfer. I think that's really interesting I-
2: well the thing is too that the farmer you know he's obviously put his whole life and career into it i could not imagine just you know selling and walking away with nobody gonna really take it over of course kind of thing. Yes. and uh, so i can see where farmers would go down that road
0: i'll bet the industry has a relationship and connection to the land that is more than just business or a place that you might work in for a period of time. It's part of who you are, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. One of the things that we've, we are experiencing in the South Georgian Bay region is sort of this new pioneer mindset. A lot of small businesses and a lot of family businesses are starting. And I think that's coming out of the pandemic. Given that you have a deep history in family business, what advice would you have for new businesses, whether it's agriculture or other sectors, you know, trying to make a go of a family business? What do you think is critical to the success of a family run business?
2: There's two different questions there, really. Uh, You were speaking of someone wanting to start a new business, and then what's critical for a family business to operate? And maybe I'd do that in two stages so critical for starting a small business agriculture or otherwise is absolutely know your costs know your costs inside out and then make sure that uh, you have a contingency plan if start things start going south and contingency plan of extra money because whatever you think it's costs you can add half that again automatically almost the other important features are you got to know your market and you know don't think build it and they will come know your market inside out when if you're whether you're growing produce or agricultural commodities or whether you're doing landscaping you know you just you, you got to know what you're going to end up with where who's going to buy it whether it's a produce or whether it's a service just to make sure that uh, you're going to get paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. That's a that's a big one. Now, as important as all of that is, labor is huge. And so, if you think you're just going to walk out and grab however many people off the street, you're going to be in for a big surprise. And uh, I know, in your background, you can appreciate the labor shortages that we're in in this area. And it's not just this area; it's everywhere. Labor is extremely important. And, and good help and you know you have to expect to pay for good help you can't be chintzy about that
0: it's all about the people and the horsepower that that brings right uh-huh.
2: well the people have to really buy into what you're doing they have to feel pride and take ownership of their responsibilities going forward
0: You know, I think a lot of people might be tempted to answer that question by talking about how uh, dynamics between parents and kids or spouses. And I think what what you're reminding us is, look, the business fundamentals are important, regardless if it's a family collaboration or not. Right. I mean, it's a luxury to deal with some of those other things if you get the fundamentals right.
2: Yes. But then uh, taking it a step further into a family business, some hard questions have to be asked, uh, especially if there's more than one son or daughter coming into it, I guess, the hard questions being, you know, where do you see your role? And, And depending on the business, if it's working Saturdays and Sundays and holidays, don't get into it and then say, Oh, I didn't sign up for this. So ask all those hard questions. And even in a family, especially in a family, make sure you have a business partnership agreement and that everybody's on the same page. That goes hand-in-hand hand with succession planning, and we have done an unbelievable amount of that. I'd like to think that we have everything nailed down 14 ways to Sunday. But when we started succession planning, I thought, okay, this is going to take a year, two years kind of thing. But I quickly found out that succession planning is ongoing. It never stops. You can have think of everything figured out, but things evolve. People change, businesses, dynamics change. And uh, so that succession planning. You have to leave an open door.
0: And you have, uh, I mean, in your context, you have your specific business and uh, you work with your sons, you work with your wife, but you also work with other family and other ventures as well. So I would imagine that cuts across all of those relationships, doesn't it?
2: It it sure does. It sure does. And uh, just speaking of other businesses and families... We've uh, had the luxury of our own experiences with our own family business. And so being involved with other family businesses, such as the winery and some other things that we're involved in, we've gone into it with our eyes wide open kind of thing.
0: Well, that's probably why they're so successful because you've done the homework on that factor. So that that takes care of a lot of the challenges. And then when the ones that creep up that you didn't anticipate, you have the bandwidth to address them. So I think that's really good advice. Uh-huh. And probably in any employment context is, you know, understanding where, where people want to be, what their skills are, what their expectations are, and understanding that those change over time. Of course they do. Yeah, it's really yes. good advice, John.
2: Yeah, they certainly do. Uh, with our two sons, they each play quite a bit different roles in the business and I play a different role as well. And it's, it's worked out uh, to our benefit. And we, we took a couple of courses uh, a few years ago on uh, family farm businesses and it was so helpful. It was uh, unbelievable. One of the things I'll never forget, the fellow that was leading the uh, course, Dr. Larry Martin had said, don't try to buttonhole someone into a specific job or position, just get a nice start and let people feel comfortable and fall into their own role. Right. And then refine it from there.
0: That's right. And I guess when you do that, you, you discover where the true talents and skills are and then that can deliver returns as well. I'm wondering just personally, as a father, Did you ever struggle with sort of keeping your father hat on versus your business partner hat on? Like, did you have to keep yourself in check or (laughs) uh, or order your son say, dad, like, come on.
2: Yes. And it is uh, very interesting going down that road because we're business partners, but we're family. And to, you have to separate those two things. You can't always be business and you can't always just be family. Sometimes you have to be the partner that says, uh, I don't like that or, yeah. you know, whatever. Certainly, it, it adds a different mix to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> a little bit of, uh, I'm sure, humility along the way, right? And, and good learning, oh, too. yeah. Right?
2: There's times when I know uh, what's being suggested by my sons I don't necessarily agree with. But I'll say to myself, you know what? I'm just going to go along with this and see where it goes. So many times it has worked out so perfect. And I've kind of quietly kicked myself in the butt for even thinking <laughs> no. And uh, so, yeah, you have to be open-minded.
0: Yeah, well, good for you. That's that's amazing. Just for those who are listening who might not fully appreciate the scope of the apple industry or the agricultural industry in Gray County, South Georgian Bay, I was wondering if you could just give us a brief history from your perspective of, of apple growing in our community.
2: Okay, uh, let's see. Short history or going way back or...
0: Yeah, just like, you know, a good timeline of just for people who might not know, like how how deep are the roots and why was this area so um, good for apples?
2: So apple growing goes back to the late uh, 1800s or even earlier here. But having said that, when farms were being homesteaded in the mid-late 1800s, every farm pretty much had an acre or two or three of apples. And lots of areas of the province didn't do too well, but that was kind of part of the gig about having your own produce to take you through the winter kind of thing. And they would store apples in barrels in their root cellars or, or wherever. And then over the period of time, certainly it became known what areas of the province were good, had good climate for growing apples and which didn't. And uh, so that has evolved. And the Georgian Bay area is the largest apple-growing area in the province. And that takes in from Collingwood through Thornbury, Clarksburg, Beaver Valley, and Meaford areas. And a big part of that is the relationship uh, weather-wise to Georgian Bay and within a certain range of the bay for the moderating temperatures. So in the spring... Where inland, it's warmer because they don't have the cold water beside them. Buds will tend to come out earlier and then get hit by an early frost around bloom time. When we're close to water like we are, and it's like drawing a line across the road, 10 kilometers from the edge of Georgian Bay, it's just like literally drawing a line across the road and there's no apples further than 10 kilometers oh. anywhere you
3: Oh, interesting. Um, the only
2: exception to that would be Glen Heron, And I don't know why, but they're good there. <laughs> but, interesting. Uh, yeah, so um, it's the moderating effect in spring and then again in the fall. Uh, whereas inland, uh, it gets cold and have early frost. We don't get that nearly so much because of the moderating effect of the warm water body of water beside us.
0: So the and buds so- are protected in spring and the crop is protected in fall. Correct. Yeah, yeah. you got it. Yeah, interesting, interesting.
2: By the early 1900s, there became uh, quite an infrastructure, an area for apples, Uh, everything from nurseries, growing trees, to apple processing plants for juice and pie fill. And then on the other side of things, the fresh apples for the dessert market and Mm -hmm. the stores, retails. And so along with that, uh, you need the background, the infrastructure, of farm equipment uh, that specializes in orchard equipment you need the uh, human resources for scouting for biology for an understanding the insect and pest world mm-hmm. you need crop protection material suppliers fertilizer suppliers just all the things that go with it everything down to you know Hendel's clarksburg hardware that has all the pruning equipment you'd want that's right so if you were to grow apples outside of this area that doesn't have that infrastructure it'd be pretty tough finding all the things you need and then right. the storage apple storage facilities and you know just everything that goes with it so interesting
0: ah uh, that's yeah so you know we often talk about the the geographic conditions that led to a sector, but you're very right to point that out. It's also the infrastructure around it. And it's, it's how these different suppliers and partners and experts all come together in an area to create and sustain that, that sector.
2: It takes decades to put all those, for all those pieces to grow and come together.
0: Yeah. I didn't know that. It was interesting when you talked about every farm in the early, early days had, had some apples. And then over time, the assessment was made that this region is better for this product or, or that, that uh-huh. commodity. Was that done with, you, was that done with a fair bit of purpose or was that sort of just a, a byproduct of, I guess, who knows, right?
2: I think it was all by default.
0: All by default, <laughs> but, yeah. but fascinating that, you know, whomever was here at the time, they had that analytic mind going to assess what was working in different places. And then of course you get the concentrations and the, and the support systems around that. I think that's really neat. I, I wasn't aware of that.
2: Yeah. So the, when one of the first processing plants started was started by the Mitchell family and that's where Thornberry cider is now. That's right. The uh, Mitchell family, when they first started out, they called their products John quality. Uh, Uh The fellow's name was John Mitchell, but, you know, the name wasn't known, whereas, you know, 80 or 100 years later, uh, Mitchell's is still a well-known name, and uh, then hence was Mitchell's apple juice, Mitchell's sauce, and all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, yeah. In in going through the history, you talked about a couple of different product lines, which is which is really interesting to me. So, if you're in the Apple business, you might sell at a farm gate. Uh, you might sell to very large retail chains, as you mentioned, with the product or those processing. Whether it's for juice or or like you said, slice, even sweeteners. I think right doesn't some aren't some Apple product used for sweetener prep? I've read somewhere
2: uh, we do a nice apple, ice apple. <laughs> <laughs> wine
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's one yeah. wine cider etc
2: yeah generally speaking uh, if uh, apples used as a sweetener it would be an imported concentrate
0: okay uh, gotcha. very
2: little concentrating done in canada
0: You know, canada mm. so there's, there's a lot of uh, verticals or uses for the product. I'm wondering what is that mix in our region today? So, you know, uh, if you look at sort of South Georgian Bay's sort of Apple team, you know, what's mm-hmm. the percentage that is going to retail stores versus processing versus specialty products like cider or wine? Do you have a sense or, or the order of?
2: Uh, yes. And, and that can get to be a complicated. I'm sure. Thing that you probably don't want to get into now, but well, Nobody grows apples just for juice. Juice is just a a byproduct that you hope you can salvage some some return back. Uh, Not return, but at least you hope you can salvage dollars back to go go against the cost of, of growing it. So the process industry, you wouldn't plant an orchard to go into processing. Some of the older blocks now, I guess maybe I should back up a bit, but some of the older blocks really just lend themselves to a process product. A lot of the older orchards here are grown uh, to grow volumes of apples, not particularly, certainly not a high quality uh, dessert apple, but high quality for sauce and slice production. And a lot of our sauce apples actually go to Quebec. Oh, really? Yeah. And then uh, slice apples like the Northern Spies, a premium slice apple for pies, uh, we sell anywhere through uh, Michigan, New York, Ontario, and Nova Scotia. We send a lot of apples to Nova Scotia. And so that's the processing side. And the uh, fresh side is certainly, well, the metros, the Sobeys, blah, blah that kind of thing. And then some of the higher-end independents. And that is that area is changing very quickly with the demographics in Ontario. We used to have a palate, uh, the population had a palate for a higher acid type of uh, flavour, such as Macintosh and Empire, Mm -hmm. uh, Spartan, that kind of thing. With the immigration of, I'm going to say, a lot of Asians and East Indian, they have very much higher regard for a sweeter apple. Even our younger generation now is wanting sweeter apples like Honeycrisp, yeah. Ambrosia, uh, Gala, and so a lot of the varieties are falling away from that. Well, right. they're just uh, there just isn't the market there for them. That's the worst. right. Well,
0: mm-hmm. like you said at the beginning, know your market, right? So when you uh, understand what the where the market drivers are, I guess that shapes the type of product that you uh-huh. that you prepare and grow let's say you're in the in the retail business and you know you're you're buying product and selling product you can get some pretty good inputs from your consumers about how their tastes change and you can adapt probably with a little you would expect quicker uh than most but when you have to plan an orchard mm-hmm. cultivate it you know it takes yeah. what how many years before you can get fruit from a tree and then you know you're caretaking for them to me i see the the ability to shift it must be much more challenging so how do how do farmers do it how do you have the foresight to know is it having is it having a variety of apples and then just sort of being ready to to shift with the tastes or or how do you pivot
2: well you try to have a good crystal ball for sure <laughs> <laughs> but uh, there's two things at play here and one is costs mainly labor costs yep. that are forcing replanting by growers to go from the larger trees. that inherently have a lower percentage of fancy fruit, just because those trees are so big, they're shaded. So we go in and do summer pruning at great expense, try to get the sunlight in. And even still you end up with 60% of the apples being fancy and 40% being juice, right? Uh, The huge labor costs and and pruning, uh, summer pruning and then harvesting pretty much would put a person out of business. And then, so you have to go to a more high-density type of orchard uh, where the trees are spaced exactly the same throughout all the blocks so that you can use labor-saving devices such as uh, uh, working platforms for pruning and thinning and training your trees and harvesting and, and all that kind of thing. But at the same time, the variety mix is changing. And so we're going away from the Macs and the Spartans and that, higher acid type apple to the newer varieties, Ambrosia, Gala, Honeycrisp. And so those two things happened at one time because in the early 2000s, the apple industry took a real dive as people recognized that their labor costs were just way out of proportion and that their variety mix was wrong. People have had to really push to replant. And uh, I know ourselves, it's a real challenge just to finance that. Because you're looking at in excess of $20,000 an acre just to replant. And you so $20,000
0: your- $20, an acre to replant. That is yes. a staggering number, yeah.
2: yeah. And that's with the land already there. In your hands, right, yeah. right. Okay, yeah. yeah. Sorry to cut you, you off. Add- that's
0: just a number that I think would astound people.
2: Yeah. And then you have to add irrigation, like trickle irrigation, the yeah. irrigation of the water supply. And the support systems for the trees and uh, yeah, it just of was course. on and on. But right on. Uh, anyway, there's been quite a resurgence in the Apple industry in the last eight or 10 years doing much, much better now.
0: That's good. Suites. That's good. Yeah, I was doing some research and I haven't found a lot of uh, you know sort of economic conditions reports of of the last 10 years or so, but when you look back around 2010 or the early 2000s you did see that that the reporting about all those those challenges. So I guess the the shifting to the different varieties and the different styles of planting is helping you or helping apple farmers be more responsive? Is it getting fruit to market quicker?
2: Uh, I wouldn't say it's getting fruit to market quicker. Apples, an apple, the older trees, the older, larger rootstocks. Yeah. Because something a lot of people don't realize is that the grower picks the rootstock before they even pick the variety. So the rootstock determines the size of the tree. So you can get trees grown under various rootstocks that will produce whatever size tree you want. And uh, so the, from there, the nurserymen bud the variety onto that rootstock. It used to be with the older rootstocks and the bigger trees, it would take anywhere from 8 to 12 years to get into good production. Uh, with the newer high-density trees on the dwarfing rootstocks, you're down to like 4 to 6 years kind of thing. Okay. You also should consider that these trees will have a lifetime if the, if not the tree, the variety probably has a lifetime of not more than 25 years. Because by then, either the tree will be waning off, or the variety will be falling out of favor. Right. So the, when you think about it that way, you should be replanting 5% of your acreage every year, which is a challenge in itself.
0: Right, right. So yeah, yeah. so you have that, uh, Yeah. you're always, you always have you're at different stages of that cycle on your property, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, yeah.
2: Exactly, yeah. That makes yeah. sense to me.
0: It's a lot to manage and prepare for, but I, I do think it, it's interesting and it's, it's good to hear that there's been this investment and this ability to, to adapt and shift. What, what is the economic impact of the Apple sector in, say, the town of Blue Mountains? Like, How does it stack up against other sectors?
2: It used to be hands down for most of, I would say, until 2000. Just before InterWest came along, yeah, uh, that uh, hands down the apple industry was the largest economic driver in in the in the area. Now certainly tourism has taken that by along by landslide, but agriculturally, uh, apples is still the, the the main main driver in our area.
0: For sure, yeah. Well, I I sort of see them as in a way really linked because. You know, a lot of why people come here is for the same reasons I think that the apples grow here and it is the, it's the (laughs) nature, it's the geography, it's the fruit is born from the lands and great experiences. So I think there's a, there's a relationship and I know from visitors who who love to, you know, go on those drives and see those orchards and, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I think that we're definitely having a challenge points. You know, some people think that an arch orchard is sometimes uh, a park, which of course it isn't. Yes. <laughs> and we have to manage some of that stuff. But yeah, no doubt economically speaking, agriculture and apple growing is, is one of our anchors, right? It's one of our economic drivers. And I think your, your point around there's the farm and then there's all the service providers right down to retail equipment, technology?
2: Well, the high-tech uh, storage operations and packing plants to sort, grade, package all that fruit into various packages for various markets. And the technology is, is really exciting.
0: Yeah. I was wondering if you, yeah, can you, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about that. What kind of areas are technology really making an impact
2: so in the apple growing business, you want to be vertically integrated. I wouldn't say to the point where you're growing your own trees. You, you can, but we like to leave that to the nurserymen. But uh, right from planting to growing the fruit, planting, bringing the tree into production, growing the fruit, harvesting, that's just the first step or first few steps. And then to store the fruit till they go to market. They may be picked in September, October, but they may not be marketed until july or august and so there has to be uh, fantastic storage available for it and that's uh, refrigerated but also controlled atmosphere
0: that's right so that they they stay fresh right
2: the rooms are filled with a particular variety of apples and also particular uh, stage of maturity so that they'll all keep the same for whatever period of time and uh, be good quality when they come out. So we fill a room that's sealed absolutely airtight, and then it is flushed with nitrogen to reduce the oxygen levels from 21% down to about 2.5%. And that slows the respiration of the apple down, basically puts it to sleep. But as it respires, it gives off carbon dioxide. So that uh, has to be dealt with. So there's gas analyzers that are analyzing the, the air in e- each one of those rooms, literally every hour. And then if the uh, oxygen level is creeping up or the carbon dioxide level creeps up, so with carbon dioxide, it's a very simple thing. There is The air is uh, that low oxygen air is pulled out of the room, goes through a series of carbon beds, just like charcoal and that, oh, wow. that draws the carbon dioxide out of that air and that same air is put back into that room and it's just like a revolving cycle
0: and so that must be all computer driven software driven and sensors absolutely mm-hmm. it's a lot of work to protect from that the what was that old saying one bad apple right so i guess that's, yeah, exactly that's to make sure that one bad apple doesn't spoil the bunch right
2: so obviously uh for the most part, that's too big an operation for one family operation to do uh, just the sheer volume that you have to put through. So we are involved with uh, five other apple growing families and only Bay Growers, Apple Storage and, and Packing Facility, Gosh, yeah. which is a so, so collaborative create- investment. Yeah. And so yeah. all the marketing is done through them, not, not ourselves.
3: Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Cundell, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, Matt@soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about, all from the comfort of your home?
0: at bite.com. That's B-Y-T-E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Bite. How about on-farm? Are there are there a lot of um, analytics systems measuring things like soil, moisture, all that sort of stuff? Is that a big part you know, of your operation now?
2: There is uh, for soils, for sure, like uh, for irrigating so that you are being efficient in the water you use and you don't over overwater water. All of our new plantings are trickle irrigated, and just as we speak, one of my sons and an electrician are wiring up the computerized systems to, or the one new system we're doing now. Every part of this, say there's a hundred acres, you know, there'll be twenty-five acre zones kind of thing, and they'll all come on intermittently as is called for as to their needs, and uh, all all computerized, uh, all the software for it. It's all underground; you don't see it. Um, it's, it's quite amazing. It's just, it's just amazing. You go into yeah. the uh, pumping station room and it's just a series of screens and software systems. And I, I just go like, wow, I don't even know. Unbelievable.
0: How to <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so could you be at, can you be at a point now where you're, you're not, you don't need to be out on the land. You can be getting data to your phone, which tells you what is you know, needed. That's, and
2: that's the problem. I can't do anymore what I like to do. Like,
0: Get on a tractor or
2: mower and just mow some grass for the afternoon. Very seldom (laughs) any of the three (laughs) of us get a chance to do that. We're mainly managing. But uh, on the labor side of things, with our offshore workers, we have different groups that do different jobs. Managing your labor costs is huge. So every day, everybody is logged in by one of our cell phones. And our four kind of crew leaders have their smartphones, and they put in what each man is doing, uh, what tasks they're doing, what farm they're doing it. We have, uh, I think it's uh, 102 different blocks of orchards. And wow. so we track the labor right from the day they start in the spring till the day they leave in the fall. And we yeah. know where every hour is spent in every block. So at any given time, you can bring bring up the information with the software and know exactly how many dollars right to the penny it costs to hand-thin that block, or whether storm pruning or weeding or, right. that, or training trees or whatever. Sure. And then at the same time, when you're harvesting, you go into that system and you record your production and the cost of the harvesting. And some blocks that I always thought were my favorite, that I never wanted to lose, <laughs> My sons want to take them out, and I'm going. Oh, not that one. That's so good.
0: And then, uh, and they're go- saying, "Look, Dad, here's the data." Yeah, yeah, exactly. I go, okay, get the chainsaw. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, the, this data revolution is—we're all experiencing it, right? No matter what sector we're in, we're all going through that experience of investing, learning, challenging ourselves, and. And you know, I think you and I are probably in the same camp. Where I am not a digital native; like I did not grow up with that Mm -hmm. as my operating system, so to speak. So it's harder for me to to learn and catch up to. But I'm fascinated by it.
2: Yes, and things are moving so fast. I've often thought, if I was out of the loop for two years, I wouldn't know what the heck to do. I all of a sudden had to (sighs) come back into it. You just you'd be lost.
0: Yeah. So how does so how do how does the industry stay connected to those trends and that kind of innovation? Is it? I know there's great agricultural associations, and I, I know you mentioned University of Guelph is a is a real leader uh-huh. in, in ag innovation. But are there other networks that you rely on? How do you stay connected?
2: Uh, there's a number of things. One is it's kind of interesting that my sons are involved with is the uh, Young Apple Growers of Ontario. And mm. so, people, whether they have a background or no background, and are just starting into the Apple business, they collaborate together, and uh, you know have uh, well now Zoom meetings and things like that, but uh, to discuss all sorts of the issues that uh, come up in the Apple business, uh, whether it's the production or marketing or or otherwise. And uh, I'm amazed at how much they network and learn from mm-hmm. each other. And there's lots of older. Uh, growers that join in and give their two cents worth and mentor the uh, ministry of ag and food is also uh, very good about putting out information and again the way that the information is delivered has changed so much in the last 10 years to what it you know used to be uh, so that uh, again it it all gets down to technology right
0: (laughs) for sure Mm -hmm. yeah do you see it like can you stand back and look at it from a thirty thousand foot level and say all this innovation all this data is going to help the industry be more successful and profitable and and then by extension you know canada's food security or ontario's food security is on good track because of that like do you Mm -hmm. think those are all leading to those kind of outcomes and goals
2: absolutely they're leading to that but i am very very concerned about Canada's food supply.
0: Oh, yeah?
2: Uh, Just that Canada is one of the higher costs of of labor. Uh, Right. We have one of the highest social expectancies, if I can say that, right? Everything, you know, from quality of work time, quality of accommodations, quality of leisure, uh, off work time, all the social aspects and all the social costs drive our costs up higher per unit. Of course. And it's that- such
0: a labor it's a labor intensive land intensive uh-huh. uh, endeavor, right? So uh-huh. that yeah, I can see how that would be the case, yeah. So,
2: you know, if we're competing against other countries that aren't so minded such as China or Chile right. or you know, they just when the rubber hits the ground, the major chain stores like Loblaws, and Sobeys and Metro, they really don't care where they get their product from. They just care about price and how cheap it is. So that's that's why through our lobby organizations, we push really hard to connect with people about the importance of the food and the fact that we have to be sustainable and we have to produce not just high quality food, but we have to produce fruit that is the safest in the world. And we're yeah. very proud of that. Uh, yeah, you know, I
0: just and it's worth the investment, right? I guess that's the, the other part. On behalf of the governments in Canada, it's worth the investment and in support, supply management, uh-huh. other tools to make sure that our ag sector is getting the support it needs.
2: So the horticultural industry has a number of bodies that lobby government for support. Yep. And to remind government, so there's like the Ontario Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association, it uh, is uh, financially kept by a container fee. So every container that you see in a grocery store, whether it be a box or a bag, has a fee attached to that, that whoever sold that to whoever packaged it pays. And of course, all the growers end up ultimately paying for it Amen. but that goes to support those lobby groups such as ontario fruit and veg and also canadian or council uh, which is uh, nationwide and their main thing is to lobby government to understand agriculture to give us support and not necessarily financial support but re- regulatory support yeah for everything uh, from whether it be uh labor restrictions uh, pesticide use, water use, all of the above, and to educate and re-educate the government every time they change, new politicians come in, they all have to be educated and re-educated. Otherwise, agriculture and Canadian-produced food could fall off the cliff.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think you're right to be concerned because some of those the velocity of the economy is growing faster and faster so like you said a couple of chains by making a few decisions based on pennies or or more than pennies i'm sure could have ripple effects right and and you could ease the sector could easily be caught blindsided and i would imagine that is nerve-wracking, especially when governments change and staff at government agencies change. And so it's a lot of education to do. Yeah, I can just imagine. What role does the consumer have in this? Because I am hearing, if you listen to podcasts or you hear the news or you watch what's going on in consumer culture, there's this narrative of wellness, of sustainability, of organic, of all of those things that people value the quality of their food and locally grown. But it seems to me that 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 is a narrative but it might not be the reality that is really driving the broader food production in Canada. I'm wondering if you have a sense of that. Like, are you concerned that consumers don't care enough that our commodities could be coming from halfway across the world with less labor standards and protocols or.
2: I'm not so sure that the consumer doesn't care. In a lot of cases it is uh, the dollar, the cost. Yeah. You know, they win and they see tomatoes from Mexico for $1.49 a dollar forty nine a pound, and they see Ontario tomatoes at two forty nine a pound. Well, yeah. take the Mexican ones, right? Uh-huh. But another consumer might just say, you know what? We don't eat a whole pile of tomatoes, and I want a nice tomato, and I want a Canadian one, and I want to know that it's uh, safe. So I'll yeah. pay that for it. So I find that interesting. I, I spend a uh, when I'm shopping, and uh, <laughs> I tend to hang around the uh, produce aisles yeah. and it's just kind I'll of watch like what people do, and, and mm-hmm. I get a kind of a kick out of
0: it. But uh, and what do you say? Is it so? Price is the driver. Price is the
2: driver for a lot of people. Fear then known. Mm. So people will buy organic because they're not so sure about fruit and vegetables that are not grown or organically labeled. Right. Right. So That's... conventional. In other words, it's, it's fear the unknown. That's a whole nother discussion. And uh, whether it's conventionally grown or organically grown, we have so many regulations in place that it's all very, very safe. Very That's safe. Right. So I wouldn't say that organic is any safer than conventional. But, um, you know, looking around the world, Canada's the safest, best food production. And just a, a quick little story to that. Uh, my wife and I were in Vietnam four or five years ago and uh, we were in a market, large, large market, and these two Vietnamese ladies were doing fruit baskets. And on the top of every fruit basket was this great big ambrosia apple. And my mm. wife said, hey, look at that. Those are ambrosia. And I went over and I looked at the label, and it was a product of British Columbia. Oh, and- wow. So it took a little bit of uh, work language barrier wise, but they got somebody to interpret. And the lady said that they will not buy any fruit other than can- Canadian. And that's oh, in Vietnam. Yeah. So, right. you know, they could have had Chinese right beside them. They like to buy Canadian because it's safe. Right. Mm-hmm.
0: So our reputation globally is, is strong. It's, and I yeah, guess- strong. It's just the challenges with the cost structures being so high. It's making sure that we can continue to produce that for not only a domestic Uh market, but a broader market. Yeah. You've talked a lot about the labor costs and the intensity of, of agriculture, and you've talked about international workers. I'm wondering if you can just share with us a little bit about what it's like to build a team and create a team atmosphere in that environment. It must be very interesting and fun.
2: It is. And I think it totally depends on your attitude going into it. Mm. One of my first offshore workers, when I was at a small operation, just myself, the first year I needed a, a Jamaican assistant uh, throughout the summer, he's been with us. He just retired last year. He was with it and he, he would have come up last year except for COVID, but he was uh, 39 years with us. And I think, you know, for wow. someone to come up, for 39 years and work with us. uh, It's just like family. And uh, so we've got so many men that have been 25 and 30 plus years uh, with us. And, you know, everybody is first name basis. And it's, it's really fun. And we've gotten to know their culture and they've gotten to know our culture. And the comfort zone is is so cool. It's so good. Yeah. Well, it's
0: learning in a different (laughs) way, isn't
2: it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure is.
0: Yeah. I've noticed, I don't know if, if this is new, but I've noticed a lot of different agricultural businesses or farms are, are flying flags. I've seen a lot of Jamaican flags Mm -hmm. on orchards at Grandma Lambs in Meaford. I've seen a lot of great signs. We, we love our international ag workers. And I've just, I've just really seen this more open discussion about how we're, we're working with international sources of labor in, in ways in which we're bringing it out in the open and t- talking about it and celebrating it. I think that's really mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is, so, it a, is it a challenge? Is, are the systems in place easier today, more challenging? Is the government supportive?
2: Yeah. No, it's, it's certainly gotten tremendously more difficult, especially the federal government. I want to say this in the right vein. They don't live in the real world. They never lived as a farmer. and. Right you know they think that uh, everybody should make you know a hundred plus thousand dollars a year no matter what. It's the social values of our federal government right now. So that's that's whether it's the wage rate or a number of other other things and there's all sorts of things at play, whether it be food workers unions trying to get in and you know just causing generally causing disruption and uh, getting people excited over, Something that has been well looked after and well maintained all the way along, yeah. and then the government reacts because elections coming up, and
0: mm-hmm. blah blah blah. But yeah, yeah, you know, the, it's like the difference between the politics of it and then the reality, uh-huh. right? And the offshore
2: yeah. worker program started in 1965, and Thornbury was the pilot project. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, and so the Mitchell family were the very first employers. Of offshore workers and how that came about if we just have a minute in the late 50s and early 1960s a lot of the eastern caribbean islands uh, gained their independence but along with their independence they also became broke very quick and so the uh, world monetary fund kicked in and all of the developed countries were expected to fund money in every year as was Canada. And Mm -hmm. so in the early 1960s, well, just before that, after World War II, the horticultural industry in Ontario was growing rapidly, along with the immigration of uh, Dutch families that worked on all these horticultural farms. By the late 1950s, early 60s, those Dutch families that had immigrated here had their own wealth accumulated and started buying farms and gotten bigger and bigger. And there wasn't that workforce there anymore. So by 1964 or 5, they were saying, I don't know who it was, but one smart man in the government said, you know, we're spending, we're sending so much money to the Eastern Caribbean islands, including Jamaica, and it just goes to the government of the day, and it never gets to the people. He said, we need laborers, those populations need money in their pocket, not their governments, Mm -hmm. why don't we entertain the idea of bringing workers up and they can have the pride of making their own money and being able to go back home with it as opposed to the way it had been done before. So that's actually how how the offshore worker program started. It grew from there to now it's I think about 22,000 workers every year through the Foreign Agricultural Resource Management Services.
0: It's a good example of where the industry provides livelihoods far broader in scope than people probably realize. Well, I'm we, sure for you, when you're when you're looking at your profitability, you're probably looking at, I mean, you're managing your labor costs, but you're also thinking of these individuals who've been working with you for decades, and you want to make sure that they can make a living and feed mm-hmm. their families. And-
2: well, it is, but it feels so good about it. You know, at the end of the year, we have an after-harvest get-together. Inevitably, two or three men will get up and, and do a speech about how their life has been working for us. And they'll uh, relate how their sons and daughters, because of their opportunity to work in Ontario and uh, work in any one of the farms, that they've been, their sons and daughters have been able to become doctors and lawyers and professional people they would never have been able to otherwise. So, uh, you know, that yeah. it, it just makes person feel warm and fuzzy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and I think, you know, in a way it's, it's so interesting, no matter where we, where you come from, you know, I have family that is sort of Eastern European background. It's the same dynamic. You know, my mm-hmm. grandparents came here, didn't, you know, earn a lot of money when they started, they put everything into their families and then their kids became, you know, very successful. It's the, it's the, the immigration story of sort of North America, right? Uh-huh. It's really interesting. I think we all have so much more in common than not. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. I know. I mean, listen, we're all, I think one of the things that I'm getting a greater appreciation for through this conversation is just how much similarity there is between different sectors and different industries whether that's adapting to change managing costs growing your team requiring technology and and skills that we didn't have even a decade ago it's it's a lot it's a lot i'm going to i'm going to shift gears a little bit out of what I would, I would define as maybe core traditional agriculture and into sort of a, a terrain that is a bit new. So, you know, we talked a little bit about where agriculture and tourism intersect. And, you know, there's wineries are a really big tourist draw, cideries, micro brews, and often linked to, um, agriculture. So the, the cider growth here has really been really fun to watch and participate in. And as you said, uh, the winery that you're involved in and others. I'm wondering, do you think that's a trend, kind of that on-farm or farm-adjacent agri-experience in tourism? Do you think that's a trend that's going to continue growing? H- how do you see that shaping out in, the say, the next decade or so?
2: I think it will certainly growing, and I believe it will continue to grow as the population grows. And people certainly, they want, but they have a need, a psychological need, to get out of the city and uh, just look at COVID right now, the past 14 months, people are climbing the walls, right? And you just, people need to get out and about and out in the fresh air and outdoors and and that kind of thing. So if your operation lends itself to that, certainly there's a lot of growth potential. However, if your operation doesn't lend itself, like to do a pick your own kind of thing, uh, that's a whole different kettle of fish you, know, yeah. you have to manage it differently you have to have people managing people and that's something we've chosen not to, not to get into yeah, yeah. on the pick your own thing but um, yeah. at the you know with the winery and the cidery cater to those people and you want to make their experience great and you want them to come back again and again and again it's it's really the experience is really important
0: Yeah, And I would imagine that that winery, if it was in um, a more commercial urban setting, I don't know that it would be as special as it is to go visit Georgian Hills Vineyards to see the the fields and the apple growing all around you and be in that context. I can see why that why that would be so appealing to a customer a visitor a local but i would imagine on the flip side of that there has got to be challenges from that fusion of an agricultural business it's quite sophisticated it's a it's quite an operation and then you know visitors who are kind of out and about so i wonder if you could share with us maybe some of the the conflict points that that you hear about or that you experience yourself
2: conflict points would be doing your day-to-day horticultural practices that for food safety reasons and health safety accidents whatever you can't it's hard hard to mix right so we have a great uh, venue at Georgian Hills where there's lots of wide open spaces people can be and uh, depending on what's happening in the vineyards we offer tours through the vineyards people can see the different stages of, of the crop uh, whether it be when the buds are first appearing in the spring mm-hmm. to when they're in bloom like kind of like now kind of thing and then a few days later you start to see the teeny grapes and so um, we embrace people to sh- show them that and and just uh, we just have to we just have to be cognizant of what we're doing in the in the vineyards at the time and and yeah. make it a safe experience for everybody
0: for sure for sure yeah and i, I would imagine that the more people who come to a farm experience like that, learn a little more when they're back in the grocery store and they're comparing the price, they might go, Hmm, wow. Yeah. I can see where this is a value, right? I guess that's the hope. Well, it's not like you just
2: walk out in the fall and pick the grapes or you walk out in the fall and pick the apples, right? There's a lot that goes into it in the meantime. uh, A friend of mine is a dairy farmer and she had a, a class of school kids through the uh, dairy barn and they saw the whole milking and everything. When, as they were leaving, she overheard one little boy say to the other little boy, Wow, that's really something to see. Am I ever glad we get our milk
0: from the store? <laughs>
2: <laughs> 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 Still hadn't connected the dots. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. I, I, that reminds me of when I was a kid. I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario. So when you talk about the uh, Dutch farmers, I mean, it's a huge sector and community up there. And I remember the first time going to a farm, we were there for dinner and my mom pointed out to me that the chickens outside playing around in the yard were the chickens we were eating. And that was my first. Oh, oh.
2: <laughs> all of the taste a little different.
0: Yeah, I was like, interesting. Okay, yeah. okay, but no, I think it's important. You gotta, you know, people have to learn about all that stuff, and I think that's the the true value of. Again, when I think of tourism, tourism is about culture and experiences, and I think when people come to our region, if they come and they, you know, they. You know they go to dinner somewhere or they they go on an attraction or they stay in a hotel room those are all really nice and that's great if they can learn something and if they can understand our culture a little bit better or, or our way of life and then take that with them and then you know make decisions in their lives you know uh, around maybe you know purchasing different types of food or valuing mm-hmm. local i think that we're, we're doing our job so it's just a matter of at the same time, managing the friction points, I've talked to a lot of folks where they've moved to the region and they thought it was charming to buy a property near a farm. And then they're surprised that there are it's a it's a commercial enterprise and there's oh. noise or whatever. And so I think, you know, people have to do their homework and, and make sure that they understand what what they're what they're buying, what, what they're visiting and, and what is really goes on in a, a farm community.
2: I really enjoy educating people about farming and agriculture and what uh, goes into it, the efforts and the risks that go are associated with it, that type of thing. And above all, the safety of Canadian grown food. That's yeah. a quite a revelation to a lot of
0: people. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's something we probably just take for granted. And I think that's the thing that people need to think about: is we can't, right? It's probably something that needs needs to be continuously worked on. And I think the communities that you work with are really Im- important in helping us learn more and be educated. So I, I really appreciate you sharing that. I'm wondering what lesson have you taken from COVID-19 that you would you will bring forward in your operation.
2: I'm going to have to hesitate here for a second.
0: (laughs) I know it's like, it's hard to even think about was, was COVID a big, did COVID provide a lot of challenges for your business?
2: Yeah. COVID has been huge, but I think it's also, we've all learned a lot about health and safety and whether it's COVID or the flu or just the dirty old cold. If you notice since COVID came and people are masking, social distancing, you don't hear near the numbers of people down with the flu or down with a cold. I think it's amazing that it took this long for everyone to, to get it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's true.
2: Setting that aside, I think what's really uh, one of the big things for us is because we have so many employees and workers to be responsible, to have them work, social distancing, put 50 or 60 men together. It's not just through their workday, but it's in their off time as well. Their living accommodations, the distancing there, the yeah. huge costs and associated with that. For as we speak right now, we're building a, a new housing facility. And it's, I'm not going to say double, but it's almost double the areas that we previously had. And wow. That's, that, that's significant. It's a yeah, really significant cost. So, you know, one bunkhouse that is approved by the health unit for 32 men with the new, it's like 32 by 80 or so, whatever. And then uh, we're building a new one that's 40 by 96 and it'll only be approved for 20. So it's right. a third again, bigger. And 60 percent of the capacity
0: yeah yeah and are there support are there supports for uh, businesses like yours to help defray those costs so have the, have the programs been effective enough do you think
2: no there was a small program a year ago that came out that it came out kind of after the fact it was retroactive mm-hmm. longer right. than it was going forward so it was a drop in the bucket most people didn't qualify because by the time they knew about it it was over and, uh, there, and, and there's there been nothing like it to take its place since. Yeah, so COVID has certainly shot up the, the costs. And one of the worst part about it is the governments have not come forward with what they feel will be the new guidelines for living yeah. area, uh, s- sleeping cubic footage and all yeah. that kind of thing, right? So we're kind yeah. of out on kind of a uh, shaky branch, putting a huge investment forward in a, you know, 4,000 square foot facility.
0: And Yikes, yeah, And, and who just, knows if that, what the regs will end up being. So that's a big yeah. risk.
2: So it's like pinning the tail on the donkey, but you yeah. got to keep going, right? You can't just stop.
0: It's one of the things that I, I don't think a lot of people are truly aware of is that even though we are starting a reopening of sorts, the, the road to getting back to whatever the new normal will be is going to be long. And there's still, impacts we have yet to see so your example is a good one about you know you don't quite have a regulatory framework yet you have to invest you're doing it but there's going to be changes and risk i was speaking to a couple of uh, restaurateurs the other day here in the village and their food costs their suppliers the food costs are just really really going very high depending on the product and you know understanding now some of the things that you're going through i can see why that is the case so what's what's impacting you is then being passed down the line and those costs and risks just magnify so by the time a, an end consumer goes to a restaurant or goes to the grocery store that's why they're seeing those prices go up so i think i think there's a lot there's a lot ahead yeah. that we have well, to not, manage
2: and, and not just due to covid but also due to taxation such as carbon tax right. so a lot of discussion about carbon tax and how it's going to reduce the carbon footprint and how people can sell carbon credits and so on. But I have not found anybody in, in my world that can explain to me the carbon credit thing. Right. I can explain very well all the carbon taxes we pay. And I don't see how we're getting any of that back. I don't see how we will get it back. And I really don't understand how it's reducing the footprint. Because we can do a little bit to change our carbon footprint. But in reality, we can't get down to zero. And when you talk about the costs associated from when that tree is budded in the nursery, there's all the carbon tax that's associated with it, the 4% fuel tax and uh, so on. And then it just multiplies. So then the apple grower buys the tree. Part of that tree cost is carbon tax. And so all there's the, a
0: carbon tax on trees? Well,
2: the cost of growing trees.
0: The Fuel. Cost of growing trees, right.
2: Okay. And, uh, proper, and crop protection materials. They're made in a factory. That factory right. is all sorts of carbon costs. Right. Costs. It, and it just it's, it's distributed on and on.
0: across everything. Yeah. yeah. And then,
2: that, then that's the nursery. Then that's the grower, the farmer. Then it's the storage and packing operation. Then it's the... Carbon taxes have been levied on all the packaging because of the way packaging is made and where it's derived from. And then it gets to a store or supplier to a restaurant. That supplier to the restaurant has all these costs that have also had the carbon tax put into it. And then the restaurant itself, gas to run the the stoves, the electricity run the dishwashers, all have carbon tax. That carbon tax is just an unbelievable wild animal.
0: Thank you for for describing it in such a detailed way, because it is very nebulous to most people. And I think if that tax was, alongside of that, was a robust plan to show how those investments were going to drive the things that you need to achieve those targets and help, I think you'd probably be able to to feel more comfortable about it but it's so funny isn't it we have a need for so much innovation and yet the tax happens and that's it what's happening underneath all that and i think that there more work is clearly needed uh-huh. and I, that's where i worry where i think that we're at a, we're in an era where in some respects governments can't be responsive other than applying a tax but they can't be as responsive as the needs are so i think that's that's the big big risk for all of us going forward, I guess, is figuring well, the, how to the, how to drive applying that. Applying
2: the tax is the easy part.
0: Yeah,
3: exactly.
2: But what to do with the tax money and how to make it do what they want it to do it's, is the hard part. And I don't think right. they thought that. They haven't able to no. think it through. And I, 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 don't doubt that. I think they just did too quick, a knee jerk reaction without. Yeah. yeah. A plan.
0: Mm-hmm. So politics Anyways, maybe before. I process. Read, but uh, I think it's, No, but I'm glad you raised it because, you know, one of my questions that I was going to ask you is what, what are some of the risks in the future? And I think that it's a good example of growing costs without plans and understanding on how those impact those costs. And I think you raise a good point when we're looking at whatever environmental changes are needed. It's one thing to have an environmental impact and we need that. But we also need the corresponding plan to work with the businesses to be able to do it. And to be able to see the same returns along the way. And I guess what I'm hearing from you is that, that it's clear that's not there yet. So we need to keep the pressure on
2: taxes and uh, re- regulatory agencies that they just keep themselves in, in check and keep themselves aware of the implications when they introduce something that has never been done before, Yeah.
0: Another area where I think we've got some similarities. Well, I'm going to close it down with one final question, John. And I know you've given me a lot of time and I really appreciate it. Okay, this is going to be like asking you to choose between your favorite children and I apologize in advance. What is your favorite apple variety?
2: You know, I get asked that uh, fairly often. And it is when we are in harvest and every variety has a different harvest date. So whether it be a Macintosh or a Cortland or an Empire or Ambrosia, and I go up to that tree and I pick an apple off the tree, and it's just that it's very, very peak. And I bite into it and I go, wow, that's my, I think that's my favorite apple. And then next week it's another variety. I think, oh, that's my favorite apple. I think if I had to pick one apple, it would be Ambrosia. Ah, Yeah. The Latin for Ambrosia uh, means nectar of the gods.
0: Ah, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, so. Poetic. I I would say mine is a a good old school Mac at the right time when it's still got the crunch. Uh The Macintoshes for me will always be my favorite. There you go. I'm a traditionalist. There you go. Right on.
3: Well, Well, it's been a pleasure.
0: uh, It has been a pleasure. Thank you so much, John. And I wish you all the best and the whole sector all the best in the season ahead. Bye now. Wow, I feel so fortunate to have had the time to talk with John and to learn from him. It's incredible how complex and how robust agriculture is.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's a lot to learn, for sure.
0: Sydney, what is your favorite apple variety?
1: Ah, I actually prepared for this question. (laughs) Have you ever had a russet apple before?
0: I think I have, but in a pie form.
1: Yeah, so I think usually it's used for pies, and I don't know if it's so much of an eating apple and my boyfriend compares it to a potato which doesn't make it sound very good but there's it's a little bit it's a little bit harder it's a little bit older like it has this rough skin on it almost but something about it is delicious I I'm not explaining it very well but I promise a rusted apple is an old apple and it's like a, the variety is quite old but it's pretty good wow What about yourself?
0: Uh, Well, as I explained to John during the podcast, Macintosh Mm. apples are my favorite when they're super crispy and they're super fresh. There's nothing better. You do a lot of work to support the Apple Pie Trail.
1: Yes, I do.
0: And that is a program that BMVA has created to really celebrate the apple producers in the region. Maybe can you tell us a little bit about it?
1: Yeah, the Apple Pie Trail is essentially... A guide or yeah a trail I guess that takes you through different parts of the area that um, focus on apples really whether they're producers of apples or they make ciders or they sell pies if they have anything to do with apples and apple growing in the region then they're incorporated on the trail and it's a lot of fun because you get to go from grocery stores to cideries to you know just exploring the area and the beauty that there is there so that's kind of what we do on the apple pie trail.
0: I think it's great. And there's a couple of restaurants that in, have incorporated apples into their their menus, right? So you can of go to a restaurant and just taste apple infused in, in some great culinary experience.
1: Yeah. I mean, how could I forget? We have, um, there's rogies at K2, mm. which are just deep fried, delicious and then uh you know there's bruce wine bar and just all these different restaurants that have incorporated apples into their food and who doesn't love a nice apple
0: absolutely well it's uh it's a great program uh, as John and I talked about, you know, I think it's a really great example of where the agricultural sector and the tourism industries really share a lot in common. And if we can educate visitors about our agricultural roots and uh, where their food comes from, I think we've done a really good job of uh, really showing people what our community is all about.
1: And it's important to know, like John said, in the talked about in the podcast, like the idea of of organic and where it comes from, but He's the producer, so he knows the the real truth behind it all.
0: Of course, of course, of course. Where can people find out information about the Apple Pie Trail?
1: We have a website, applepietrail.ca, but you can also follow us on all of our social channels, which is also Apple Pie Trail. So we're quite easy to find.
0: Amazing. Well, that was a, that was a great session. Lots of information to share and, uh, you know, really appreciate John joining us and look forward to the next discussion that we have in a few weeks time.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much, John. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Blue Mountain Village Voices, a production of the Blue Mountain Village Association. For more, go to bluemountainvillage.ca. A production
3: of the Sound Off
2: Media Company.
3: I'm Matt Kundel, host of the Sound Off podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast.